so we're in Nehemiah. Um, I hope you're loving being in this book. I am. We've learned from the first chapter that a restorer needs to be somebody who puts first things first, who centers their lives upon God. Um, in chapter two, that a leader needs to be somebody who has great faith in God, putting their trust and dependence upon him in all things. That in the, all of chapter two, again, we talked about how a, a restorer needs to be wise and strategic and everything. And last week, it shifted to the community, and we learned that I need the community, and the community needs me, and that we need everybody in, everybody's involvement to fill all the gaps. And so, as we left chapter 3, the building project was up and going, and the wall was being rebuilt. This is the picture I had last week. It's kind of, it may be hard to see, but that's what Jerusalem would look like with that wall fully restored. That's what that old city um, would look like. So the project's going, what we're going to see in the next few weeks, the next three chapters actually, is that even though the project is going, um, that doesn't mean it's going to keep going and stay on target. Like anything that we get involved with, there's going to be opposition that's going to come against it. And so we're in chapter four today, page 28. If you have those numbered, easy to find. If you don't, just you want looking for the four, one up in the upper left-hand corner. We're going to be in chapter four today. And... I want to start, if you would read along, in verse 1. You can just follow with me. So verse 1, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. And I'm going to pump the brakes here. I'm going to tell you, this is the only time I'm going to pump the brakes today, okay? So I'm not going to give you whiplash today, all right? But right after, off the bat, this chapter, this verse sets the tone for the whole chapter. Um, that they're going to face opposition. And we saw that at the end of chapter 2. Nehemiah knew this was coming, and so it comes. Um, and the truth is, is God's work never goes forward without opposition. That's just the reality. That's what we sang and worshiped about. That's what Melissa talked about. And we've already met the key opponents. The two main ones are Sanballat and Tobiah. But what we know is ultimately the opponent that's behind, the enemy behind everything is Satan, who's behind all of this. Um, Satan is the enemy of God, and he wants to destroy the works of God and everything that God has his hands in. And so he's the one that's ultimately working behind all of this. And what he's trying to do is Satan's not just trying to prevent a wall being built, which is what for Sanballat and Tobiah, that's what it's like for them. What he's about is he wants these Jewish people utterly destroyed because if he can destroy that people, he prevents the Messiah from coming into the world, the one who will be the savior of the world and who will make everything right. So he's got a big, he's got a big end game in his mind, even bigger than they have. And the truth of the matter is, and why this I think is so pertinent to us, and we already talked about this a couple weeks ago, is that if we're going to be restores, we're going to face opposition. Sometimes it will be from people, but not all the time. But all the time it will be from Satan, our great enemy. And like Melissa shared, our struggle, and I want to remind us of this, that he's the ultimate source of opposition, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the authorities, against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And I, I reference that all the time because it's easy to forget that even if we have an opponent, if the opponent has flesh and blood, they are not the enemy, right? The enemy is Satan. So let's not cast any human being created in the image of God as our enemy. They may be opposing us, but they're not the enemy. And here's what we're going to learn today about opposition that in this battle, that Satan's ultimate goal is to neutralize us. That if I'm not in the game, he wants to keep me out of it. And if I'm in the game, he wants me out. And specifically, we're going to see two primary weapons in his arsenal. 
to accomplish that. Two of his favorite tactics, and it's two of the favorite tactics of any opponent of what God is doing. And as restorers, I think we need to know these, and we need to be prepared on how to handle them. And the two tactics are this, ridicule and threats and attack. Ridicule and threats and attack. And each of these is designed to produce a particular effect, and we're going to get into those in a minute, okay? So, tactic one is ridicule. And we see this in verses one to three. So, let's start at the end of verse one, where it says, he, referring to Sanballat, ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, and he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then Tobiah gets in on the game, right? Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, he said, what are they building? Even if a little itty-bitty fox climbed up on, uh, on it would break down their, wall, their walls of stone. So ridicule, this is always the enemy's plan A, the first plan of attack. And the end game of this tactic is discouragement, to destroy hope. That's the point of ridicule, is discouragement. If you remember from chapter 2 at the very end in verse 19, Nehemiah recorded in his journal there that they mocked and ridiculed us. So this has been happening before chapter 4. And we can, you can dive in the details later if you look in depth at verses 1 to 3, but um, their ridicule is thorough. They're mocking the workers, they're mocking the work, they're mocking the material, the materials that they're using. And their whole purpose is to ruin morale, to discourage them, to get them to quit. And that's always the tactic with the enemy, right? David was mocked and insulted by Goliath. Jesus taunted insulted on the cross. Paul was laughed at in Athens. Thomas Carlyle has said that ridicule is the language of the devil. So, let's look at Nehemiah's response to this. It's in verses 4 to 6. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. And aren't you glad you aren't Nehemiah's enemy? Okay? <laughs> he did not wake up on a good side of the bed that day. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. So Nehemiah responds to ridicule in two ways. He prays and he presses on. He prays and he presses on. First, he responds in prayer. He says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Um, don't you love this guy? He consistently responds to everything first in prayer. I think that's so cool and something I still need to grow in. I just referenced it, but this prayer is pretty edgy. It's called an imprecatory precatory prayer, and I don't have time to go into it. Um, if you want to know, like... How could that be in the Bible? Last July 3rd, I preached on Psalm 126, which is an imprecatory prayer, and I talked about why that actually is an important kind of prayer. So I don't want to spend much time on that. But I will say this, is that rather than taking things into his own hands, what this kind of prayer does is I'm giving it to God and I'm saying, you take care of it, okay? I'm not going to, you take care of it. So he prays. And then he responds by pressing on. Verse 6, so simple, but I love it. So we rebuilt the wall. We rebuilt the wall. 
In football, they say the best response to taunts by opponents is by answering it with your play in the field, right? And that's exactly what they do. They keep going in spite of the opposition. And I just love this twofold response of Nehemiah because it emphasized to me what we learned in chapter 2, that he knew how to walk the tension, that tightrope, that delicate balance between faith and action, right? They don't counteract each other. They're both important. And then he adds, adds, adds at the end of verse 6, for all the, pe- the people they worked with all their heart. You got to love that. And so the result, it's going to be in verse 7, the opponents were not happy. Verse 7 reads, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. So they're getting more angry. And I just want you to know, what I learned from what we're going to see here next is Satan won't give away and he won't give up and go away. And many times, neither will the opposition. And so what they do is they ratchet things up. And they're going to go to tactic number two, which if you remember is threats and attack. It's their plan B. And we're going to see this fully play out in verses 8 to 12, but I want to start with verse 8, where it says, they all plotted together to do two things. You might want to number these. Number one, come and fight against Jerusalem. And number two, stir up trouble against it. So they call an emergency meeting. They say, the ridicule didn't work. We've got to attack. It's the only way to stop the progress. And that list of opponents in verse 7 is really important. We've already met these guys in chapter 2. Do you remember we met them and talked about them? Sanballat, the governor of Samaria. You have um, Tobiah, who was a Jew, but was was in the government in Ammon with the Ammonites. They go together, those two guys in verse 7, him and the Ammonites. And we had that Arab League in the south, right? We already talked about that. But now a new member of the opposition is added in verse 7, something that was not in chapter 2. And it talks about, it says, the people of Ashdod join the fight, which you can see lies west of Judah. So now the city is surrounded on all sides, north, south, east, and west. Can you feel the intensity ramping up as they bring in the people of Ashdod on it? I mean, it's like if we were doing this great work, which hopefully we're doing in Emporia, and the people of Colorado and Nebraska, and especially the Missourians, right? And the people of Oklahoma decided to come against us. I mean, can you imagine what that pressure would feel like? And the message is really clear. Give up or face the possibility of death. And the end game of this tactic is fear. They can induce fear. So, Nehemiah responds in verse 9. But... Boy, there's that word again. Circle that with a heavy line. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Now, I said Nehemiah responds, but actually it's the people that respond. Circle that word we. It's really important because this wasn't just Nehemiah this time. First, they go to the Lord in prayer. We prayed, we prayed to our God. And then they do something. We posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. Isn't that cool that they're learning as a people, as a community from Nehemiah? They're learning the patterns and rhythms of his life. That first you go to the Lord in prayer, then you step into action. That they're living into that same tension that he lives into. But now a new problem arises, and it's in verse 10. 
And here's what we're told in verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. So in verse 6, they had heart. But here in verse 10, they're losing heart. Their strength is giving out. I think the combination of the tactics is wearing on them, plus the simple reality of the, the massive sides of the project. And so now Nehemiah is not only facing pressure from without, he's starting to face pressure within. Can you imagine? And I think it's obvious why. Look at verse 6. There's a key detail there. I want you to put a box around three words. Key detail. I want you to put a box around half its height. We, built, we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. That's really significant. I think he put that in there for a reason because they hit what's called the hump. If you're in a task for the long haul, the second half is always much more difficult than the first half, right? You begin to lose momentum. You begin to lose the initial energy that's happening. You start losing sight of the goal, and you lose, you'd start losing perspective. You're like, we've been working at this, and nothing's happening. That's what it feels like, right? Even though the walls is halfway built, there's a lot less rubble. You just lose perspective and lose sight of the end game. And you start thinking like the opposite. This is never, you know, are we ever going to finish this? It's kind of like the kids in the car, right? Are, are, aren't we there yet, right? That's kind of what is happening to them. But it gets worse in verse 11. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and we'll put an end to their work. So with the guards in place, they start talking about guerrilla warfare. We'll sneak in, probably at night, through the gaps in the wall. We'll infiltrate the city and we'll, we'll kill them from the inside out. And I think it's clear from this verse that they're not just planning this among themselves. They're spreading this word to the Jews who live around them in those outer areas because they know that fear paralyzes people and fear is very contagious. And it worked because the rumors of imminent attack begin to run rampant, and that's verse 12. Then the Jews who live near them, you might underline that, the Jews who live near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Just this verse is so interesting to me. There's some significant details in here, but it's unbeknownst to them, by taking what they're hearing and bringing it into the city, they're fomenting greater levels of fear among the people, probably unintentionally. That's what they're doing. And these people that are hearing this, who are close to the enemy, they're hearing this, they're bringing this word into the city. What's interesting to me is that it's obvious they were more concerned about themselves than the mission, right? Because look what they say. They say, wherever you turn, they're going to attack us. So their heart's not really in the completion of the wall, but it's in protecting their own hide. But something else that's really interesting in this text, I want you to see the nonstop nature of their report of these Jewish people who are living outside the city. It says, they came and told us how many times over? Ten times over. Put a box around ten times over. In Hebrew, ten is the number that represents completion of something. And it's Nehemiah's way of saying, they told us over and over and over and over ad nauseum, they would not stop talking about this report. And it wasn't just Nehemiah they're talking to, but he says they were telling this to us. You might circle that. They were telling this to us. So, Nehemiah senses the fear rising, and he knows he has to act. And that's verses 13 and 14. This is his response. Therefore... And we're going to see him do three things, okay? Three things. 
Therefore, I stationed some, peop- some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. So he posts people in the most vulnerable places to help calm the fear of the people, okay? Second, verse 14, after I look things over, I guess I am going to do a quick break here, after I look things over, okay? So just like chapter 2, he pauses, and he's going to go personally look over the situation, the lay of the land. He wants to see what's going on for himself. I love that. And then third, which is the rest of verse 14, he casts vision to the people. And he says three things. And just so Nehemiah-like, he always starts with God first, right? First things first. Someone has said fear and faith cannot live in the same heart. So the first thing he says is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Something I've heard occurs 365 times in the Bible, once for every day. Don't be afraid. Put a one above that. That's the first thing he says. Second thing he says, remember the Lord. Remember. Put a two above that one. Remember the God who delivered us through the Red Sea out of bondage to Egypt. Remember the Lord who gave us the land. Remember the Lord who through David and Solomon created this, this, whole, this whole nation of ours. Remember the Lord that even though we were sent into exile that he remembered us and through Cyrus the Great about a hundred years ago how he brought us, gave us permission to come back to the land. And remember the Lord, the God who worked on the heart of Artaxerxes to change his heart to allow me to come back to rebuild the wall. With his help, we can meet the challenge. And then third, finally, put a three over this one, fight for your families. Guys, let's not back down, be willing to fight. And again, I see that living in that tension of faith and action. And I just love that this speech is public, so it's not just for the people to hear, but I think it's for the opposition to hear. And his strategy worked, and the results in verse 15. When our enemies heard, first that we were aware of their plot, and two, that God had frustrated it. Man, I'd underline that, that God had frustrated it. We all returned to the wall, each to our own work. We had that word each last week, an important word. You might circle that, each to his own work. So the opposition had seen that Nehemiah consistently had his pulse on what was going on, was taking action. They saw that. But more importantly, they saw and now know that somebody else is behind this work, and it's God, right? And Melissa, I think, this morning in her worship emphasized that, God himself. Beside verse 15, I want you to write Nehemiah 4, 2 to 3. Beside verse 15, write Nehemiah 4, 2 to 3. And here's why. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, Sanballat called it. Um, I'm looking at verse 2 in the presence. He called it their wall, almost in the middle, right under the word Samaria. He called it their wall. And in verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite, he also called it, on the right side of the page, their wall. That's what they were assuming for a long time. This is their wall. But suddenly now, they're saying, oh, the Lord is the one who's behind this, and they're realizing this isn't their wall, this is God's wall. And who can stop him, right? Isn't that cool? And so in the end, they're the ones that back down. They don't attack. The people of Israel, their, their courage is renewed in them, and the work went on. And then Nehemiah. This guy is so good. 
He doesn't just stop there. He wants to stay one step ahead of them. And so with foresight, not foresight, <laughs> but with foresight, he starts planning ahead, instituting further measures. And they're in verses 16 to 22. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers were posted, posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand, and they held a weapon in the other. Each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. That word trumpet, by the way, is, it's shofar in Hebrew. Okay, it's not trumpet as we think about it. It's a shofar, so you might want to write that there. The man who sounded the shofar stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles in verse 19, the officials and the rest of the people, to the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the shofar, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work. I double underline that. We continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. And at that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as, as guards by night and as workers by day. And I don't want to spend time on this. There's seven specific things that he puts into place. You can dig into those, but essentially he took extra measures to ensure the safety, and he took some extra measures to accelerate the project to get it done faster. And yet, even in all this planning ahead, God is still at the center for Nehemiah. Look at verse 20. I put a box around this. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. Isn't that great? You know, the measures he instituted here obviously made the work more difficult and required extra of the people. It took more sacrifice. They were already sacrificing. You know, the, this work of restoration, it always involves sacrifice, and it takes, it, there's a cost to it. Okay, we've got to be aware of that. But a great leader never asked his people to do anything he wouldn't do, and I love the way he ends chapter, this chapter in verse 23, where he says, Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each, there's that word each again. You might circle that. That's important to him. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. He knew that as a leader he had to make the same sacrifices as everybody else. And not just him but the men around him, including his own brothers. And then this final little detail of himself and his core men. None of us took our clothes, took off our clothes. Um, okay, I'm going to ask a really vulnerable question. Anybody here ever slept in your clothes at night because you had a really big task really early in the morning? You had to jump too quickly. Anybody ever do that? Yeah, any of us willing to admit that? Yeah, sometimes we go to Bear Trap. We'd sleep at, in our, yeah, we'd sleep in our clothes at night because it was an early haul back home. Um, and Nehemiah is like, I don't want to get caught off guard and jump up in an, in an attack, and I'm in my Kansas City Chiefs pajamas, okay? Uh, Gary Laux would totally get that, my dear brother Gary. I don't want to be caught off guard. So he's like, we kept our clothes on. There's a lot in that chapter. I kind of pushed through it, but wasn't there really good stuff there? Two things I want you to know about living as a restorer, Okay. Like the people of Jerusalem, there will be times you will become tired and lose your strength. 
And the other thing I want you to know is, like the people of Jerusalem, you will face opposition. It may come from people, it may not, but Satan will come against you. He does not want the shalom of God into people's lives, into the spaces that you inhabit. He doesn't want people to come to know Jesus. And in that opposition, the primary weapons will always be the same. I feel like there will be others, but the big ones are ridicule and threats and attack. And because he wants to generate discouragement and fear. And his end game is, is he wants to neutralize us to get us to stop the work of restoration, to keep us out of the game, or if we're in it, to get us out. But here's what I learned from Nehemiah. He can only be successful in that attempt, only be successful, if he can get us to divert our eyes from God and to distract us from the mission. It's the only way he can be successful. Those things can work temporarily, but they'll only be successful if he can do those two things. And so to counteract him, you need to do two opposite things, and it's two things I see Nehemiah consistently doing in this chapter, and it's this. You have to take care of your vision, and you have to take care of your hands, Specifically, you have to keep your hand to the plow. So let me just take a minute and fill that out, okay, for you. Um, First, take care of your vision. Take care of your vision. You do this by keeping your eyes on God. First and foremost, focusing on Him. Because God wants, I mean, Satan wants so badly, if he can distract our attention off of Him, the source of our power, then he can stop the restoration work, right? So he wants to divert our gaze off of God. I love that Nehemiah mentions God five times in this chapter, verses 4, 9, 14, 15, and 20. You don't have to write those down. And haven't we seen that this God focus of Nehemiah has been consistent all through the book to this point, that he always keeps his focus on God, kept his eye there. As David says in Psalm 16, 8, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. In Psalm 141, 8, my eyes are fixed on you, sovereign Lord. I love that. Hebrews 12, 2, where we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we keep our eyes on him. And Nehemiah shows me two disciplines or practices that help me to keep my eyes on him. Prayer and remembering. Prayer and remembering. The first is prayer in verse 4 and verse 9. And we've seen it multiple times in this chapter. We've seen it multiple times up to this chapter. So I just want to encourage you as a restorer, you've got to stay daily connected to God. Time of prayer is so important. Don't let that slip. It's so easy to do when you're busy, right? Even when you get in the restoring work, you can be so busy restoring that your prayer life can, can get hindered, right? So keep talking to the Lord about all the things that are going on. It's so vital. It helps keep perspective. And second is to remember Him. Nehemiah consistently dealt with the present by remembering the past. This word remember is an important word in the book of Nehemiah. We saw it in chapter 1. We saw it at the end of chapter 2. We see it in this chapter. His exhortation, remember the Lord. And this practice is so important um, that it's by looking back that we find the energy to move forward. Not back in a negative way, but by looking back, remembering, we find the energy to move forward. And so reflect on God's faithfulness in your life, how he's intervened in your life in the past. That's what David did all the time. He would, in his Psalms, consistently, he's reflecting on how God delivered Israel in the past, but also how he had delivered himself. 
And remember, as we sang in worship, remember, the battle is the Lord's. And that's why he ends verse 20. Our God will fight for us. Yeah, like Melissa said, we worship Yahweh Tabaoth. The great I am is the sovereign Lord of heaven's armies. And the battle is his. And he'll ultimately be victory, be the one that ends in victory. So keep our eyes on him. And then keep your eyes on the mission. Keep your eyes on the mission. Because he doesn't want to just keep my eyes off of God. He wants to keep my eyes off the mission on what this is all about. And our mission, for us, it's being restored. For them, it was building a wall. We are people who are seeking the peace and prosperity of the city. I wasn't able to get the image onto my computer for some reason. Um, I'm not sure why, but somebody in our church, after that first sermon that we're called to seek the peace and prosperity of our city, Jordan and I in the podcast talked about that you, you'll see Jeremiah 29, 11 in Hobby Lobby, and that's a great verse, right? Um, the God, he's, he's for my good and not for my evil to give me a future hope. That's a great verse, but we're like, you never see in Hobby Lobby Jeremiah 29, 7 to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And somebody in this church actually made that and stuck it on one of their frames, picture of the city, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. That was really cool, but it's easy to lose track of that, but that's what we're called to do to be rebuilders of broken walls and repairers of ruins. That's the mission. You know, as we say every Sunday, that we long to become a biblical community of kingdom people who are joining God in the restoration of all things, one person, one place at a time. So, keep the mission in front of you, all right? So, we take care of our vision by keeping our focus on God, by keeping our eyes on the mission. And then we have to take care of our hands take care of our hands, or keep our hand of the plow. And again, Nehemiah shows us the way to do this. It's by persevering, and it's by adapting. You just see him do both of these things in this chapter. And perseverance is so essential, especially in this work of restoration. I mean, don't you know, with hard things, it's easy to start, but it's not always easy to finish, right? And we're called into it to finish. That's why Paul, at the end of his life, says, I have finished, right? I've run the race. And that's what we want to be able to say. So perseverance is essential. There will be times you will run out of steam, right? You will hit that hump of the halfway mark. You'll feel inadequate for the task. There's times you will feel the brokenness of the people you're working with to restore, right? And that'll become a heavy weight, right? But Here's what I want to encourage you. Keep your hand to the plow. As Mark Mangino used to say all the time, keep chopping wood, right? Keep on keeping on. Persevere. Hang in there. Don't give up. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul says, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. This is kind of the King James. I'll finish it. Knowing that your labor is never in vain in Him. It's never in vain in Him. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then adapting. That's the second thing is to be willing to adapt. I value Nehemiah because he plans and he's strategic. But... He also is willing to adapt. Don't you see his plans? He's willing to change. Um, and I don't have to tell you this, that in life, but especially in working with people, 
and souls, um, things never happen the way I want them to, right? So I always have to be willing to adapt. A person maybe is moving towards God or I'm, I'm able to be a blessing, a shalom bringer, and then they reach a point they're like, they kind of create distance. I don't want you know, that anymore. So we're willing to adapt. Instead of pushing, we come back to a prayer posture and wait and look for a Kairos moment. So we need to be people that adapt. The unofficial model of the U.S. Marines. we have any Marines in here? The unofficial the model of the Marines is adapt, improvise, and overcome. I love that. And I hope that's accurate. I've read that in multiple places. So, be willing to adapt to the changing conditions on the ground. And if we'll do these things, we'll be able to withstand the schemes of the enemy coming against us. So, let's do the head, heart, and hand for a minute. Just curious, what's the most important thing you learned this morning? You're like, wow, that thing, learning that from this chapter was really helpful for me. That was good for me to know. Yep, some of you are flipping to the back, right? I'm not sure where we would be at now. By now, maybe page 80. Somebody is on the ball. Who was that? Thank you. On the ball, page 80. Right, Nehemiah 4 above that. Most important thing you learn. One or two things. How about your heart? How about your heart? What was the thing God was really pushing in on you today, tapping you on the shoulder? You could feel Him coming close. Maybe it was a ring. I needed to hear that. Maybe it was a sting. Ah, I need to, to get better at that. There's another one, ring, sing, and ring, sing, and sting. Sing, sings to your heart. But how was God speaking to you this morning? What was He calling you? to do or to rest in. And then your hands. So what am I going to do about that? How do I put that into my life? Who am I going to share that with? I hope we all have accountability partners through this journey. Twelve, we live in a fallen world. What C.S. Lewis calls enemy-occupied territory. But Jesus, our Savior, has landed on the ground and established a beachhead, and His kingdom is spreading globally, and we as His church are a part of that. And living in a fallen world means that I can't prevent opposition. It will happen. And I can't prevent tiredness, okay? That's going to come at times. But for me to know that Satan will use those things to generate in me two things, what's he, gonna, what's he trying to generate inside of me? What's that? Discouragement and fear. And the discouragement, what's the purpose of discouragement? Sorry, He's going to ridicule me, sorry, he's going to ridicule me, and he's going to threat, threats and attack, and that's to create discouragement and fear. Yeah, thank you. 
And ultimately, he can only be successful if he diverts my eyes from him and from the mission. And if he can distract, if he can divert my eyes and if he can distract me from that mission, right? Distract me from what he wants us doing. And so, 12, let us take care of our vision, okay? Let's take care of our vision. Let's keep our eyes on God through prayer and remembering. Let's keep our eye on the mission, what we're called to do with him, this great task that he's about, moving towards new creation. And let us take care of our hands. Let us keep our hand of the plow through thick and thin, the good and the bad, just like when we do a marriage covenant, right, in sickness and in health. I'm going to hang in there. I am going to persevere, and I will adapt as needed. I will adapt to what the enemy is doing. So, can we be that kind of people, 12? Yeah. Do you not feel the opposition? Maybe not all the time, but do you not feel that the opposition is real? We want to be people like Nehemiah who are prepared, who know what's coming, and we're prepared and we know how to respond. So, would you stand with me? I'd like to close this in a word of prayer. That was a long chapter to push through. You guys did great. You guys did great. Thank you. But wasn't it a great chapter? Isn't God's Word so practical and relevant, so rich? So, Father, um, Lord, we are so feeble. We're in this battle, and we're in it with you, but the opposition, Lord, is so, is so great. And we get tired at times, and so we need your help. You know that the enemy comes at it with a ridicule and threats and attack to discourage us and generate fear because he wants to neutralize us. He wants us out of the game. And he can do that if ultimately he can divert our eyes off of you and off of the mission of what we're doing. So Lord, help us to stay close to you, to abide in you, to keep to walking with you in prayer, to remember, help us to, to remember what we're about. And Lord, just with your strength, please strengthen the work of our hands. That's Nehemiah's prayer. Strengthen the work of our hands so that we can persevere and give us the wisdom to know how to adapt. Because we want to make an impact outside of these four walls. So I pray it's in the name of Jesus. Amen. Yep. If you're new here, Newcomer Coffee is right after in rooms five and six. We would love to meet you. And 12th. Uh, you are sent into battle, but the Lord is on your side. So go with hope.